tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? I do the you can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult worthy. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is episode 10 of the Cult Worthy Classic. Now in 1960, a legendary auteur changed the way a psychological thriller would be looked at forever. Telling the story of an unbalanced and emotionally disturbed young man who loses control every time he sees a pretty woman. A condition deep-seated in him since childhood due to an abusive and controlling relationship with a parent. That film would live on in infamy as one of the first slasher films to ever grace the silver screen. And that film was... Not Psycho. Of course, I am speaking of Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, released a mere two weeks before Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It was immediately buried by a conservative British government and pretty much ended the career of the legendary Michael Powell. Gone but not forgotten, it is considered a masterclass in filmmaking from such legendary directors as Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and Quentin Tarantino. Telling the story of Mark, a young man employed as a focus puller on a movie set who also dabbles in erotic photography, it is one of the first films that allows us to follow the story through the perspective of a killer, something we would see in future films like Taxi Driver, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, The Minus Man, and Dexter. And returning to the show to deep dive into this cult-worthy classic is my friend Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. So without further ado, let's start the show. And I am here with Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast back again after having one of the most popular episodes on my little cult-worthy classic series. So I'm happy to have her back. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to talk about Peeping Tom. Especially since we mentioned it when we talked about The Sadist, and people loved The Sadist episode, people loved that movie, and they loved you as a guest, so I'm glad that we were able to kind of like circle back and jump on this one. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's a good movie. So um, how are things in your world? You're almost to the end of season six now on your podcast? Yes. Well, on the Good Evening Kitties podcast, which is all about Tales from the Crypt, and I also throw in some horror movie reviews for fun. But I just finished season six, and I'm working on season seven right now. So that's the last season for Tales from the Crypt. So I think there's like 13 episodes in that season. Yes, exactly. So today we are talking about a film that we mentioned in the last episode when we were talking about how there were certain films that were either banned or received um, critically unfavorably because of their content and eventually ruined the careers of the filmmakers that made them. And this one is of no exception because the filmmaker behind it had just so much credible work behind him and only made a, like, a handful of films after this that were never as well received as his previous films. And this film, which in my opinion is a fantastic film, 
really tainted his career and his credibility just based off of its subject matter, its content, and just the way that I guess the conservative nature of England at that time looked on films like this. And we are talking about 1960s Peeping Tom by Michael Powell. Look out! Look out! Look out! Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? Look out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. Before we even get into this, how did you find this movie? Actually, I only ever heard of this movie maybe three months ago, if that. Uh, I never heard of it before. What happened is uh, me and my boyfriend were looking around for movies, like just like surfing through like Tubi or something. I don't know. And he saw the name and was like, oh, Peeping Tom. We threw it on while we were still looking for other movies. And then like 10 minutes in, I turned over and I'm like, you want to just leave this on? This seems kind of good. <laughs> and then by the end, we were like, oh, yeah, this is a great movie. you know. So then I started looking up more about it. And yeah, just um, apparently like it's the first British film to have nudity in it, which was like a, um, I mean, it's very small. Like, I think they had two separate versions. Like one was like without the nudity and one was with, but it was a big deal, but. And it's yeah. like literally yeah. a flash of nudity. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a blink and you'll miss it. How I heard about this film was there was a documentary about Martin Scorsese put out in like the mid to late nineties. It was a two disc set. I think it originally aired on PBS where he was just talking about, all the films that had influenced him from the early silent age up until like new Hollywood when he became big. And he said that one of his biggest influences was this director, Michael Powell, two films in particular, this film and the red shoes, which is known to be like one of the most influential, important films, especially in terms of like technicolor. It's just a beautifully shot, beautifully colored film. And then he also made a film, um, called like the life and death of Colonel blimp, which is on a lot of people's top 10 lists. Like this guy was an established director and a lot of people loved him. So for him to release this film in 1960, kind of like towards the last end of his career, it's kind of known as like a proto slasher, I guess, study of the criminal mind. To me, the most interesting part about it is that it actually came out like two weeks before psycho did. Yes. Yes. And they're both kind of similar with the, like with the subject matter a little bit, like this voyeuristic type killing. Um, what I also think is interesting is like with this one, with Peeping Tom, I think it's one of also the first movies that puts you like in the point of view of the killer, that where you're seeing that from, like as he's coming after the women and things. I, I think it's also in Psycho, I believe. I mean, I know there's the scene where he's like looking through the hole in the hotel. I mean, I think it's like a similar thing, but yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, especially when you're talking about like the first person perspective of a crime yeah. about to happening. Like you essentially see the opening shot is through the mind and the eyes of a killer who we haven't even been introduced to yet. So in a way, it kind of reminds me of like in the original Halloween by John Carpenter shot through the eyes of the Halloween mask in a first person perspective. Obviously, there's no way that this can't be a nod to this film because we see the first murder through the perception of a guy 
filming it through a, a little movie camera, like a little Super 8 camera. Yeah, I can see that because then even with Halloween, like, yeah, that you pull back and then you see it belongs to a child, the mask, you know, and then you pull back and you see this mark. Yeah, so to kind of break this down in acts, like we talked about, the film kind of has like a cold open in a sense, which again was like something that we really didn't see in films back then. We're not really introduced to any characters. We open on a dark street in London. There's like a lot of just hot lighting. It's brilliantly colored. It's beautiful. And we see a woman kind of stumbling through the street, entering her apartment building, and she's being followed by a man who has a video camera. Uh, not a video camera. <laughs> what am I talking about? A Super 8 camera. <laughs> Way before. It's, it's so before it's time. A little bit before it's time. I'm giving the film a little <laughs> too much credit in technology. He has it hidden under his like raincoat, under his jacket. So it's not completely visible at first. And as he's lurking her through the street into the stairwell of apartment building, we're seeing like this first person perspective of him following this person, this woman up to her room and people are walking past him and they're noticing that something's off about him. And if there's one thing I can say about this film, I've watched it twice now. It's one of those films that you really have to see it a couple times to catch the nuances that make sense later because upon first viewing, you're not going to catch all the things that actually have relevance later. And I could easily watch it again because there's also a lot of psychological and psychiatric babble later on that I just thought was just, you know, filling time and filling space, but actually has a lot more relevance to this character than I first gave it credit for. So yeah, this is definitely a multiple watch movie. Like with that, I was gonna say with that first um, one where he's going after that woman in the beginning, I just, what I found interesting, like when you go back later and I'll talk about later, like the psychological stuff, cause that still really stood out for me because I actually, I felt sad for Mark in a lot of ways in this, even though, you know, he's, he's, you know, serial killer, but the fact that he like goes back to see where he has attacked and like see the police and see how people are reacting to what he has done. That's the part that I was like, oh yeah, you, that's, that's pretty, like at first you'd think like maybe he was he can't control it or like he's ashamed of it, but I don't think so, you know, kind of thing. Like what's funny is that that is considered now like textbook profiling of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. This is before like the profiling of killers that the FBI put together in late 1970s was even a thing. So there is a lot of like groundbreaking ideas. I don't know if they're accidental or if they actually had some insight to some kind of like criminology that we hadn't been introduced to yet but there's a lot about this character that we've seen in characters in the future and in, in future films and in future tv series i would say like dexter especially this is one of those earlier films where you are taken through this story through the point of view of a killer and that's what makes it different from psycho because in psycho you're following essentially two or three different character arcs to get to where Norman Bates is and to get who he is. You know, you're with Marion Crane at first, and then you're with her sister, the detective, and Sam Loomis in the second and third act. But in this film, you are following Mark, played by Carl Boehm, a German actor, or I think it was actually Austrian, who, I'm not sure if you got this vibe, I got very strong Peter Lorre vibes from him. How about you? Yeah, I could see that. I could see that a bit. Yeah, I could also, I think he kind of, he kind of looks like Michael Shannon to me. He does look like Michael you know Shannon. Like, yeah. A, yeah, a younger Michael <laughs> Shannon for sure. Like if they were to remake it, I feel like he would play a good Mark. I mean, he's a little bit older now, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. And 
again, like, uh, did you ever see the last night in Soho that Edgar Wright did? No, I have not. I've heard of it. I've never seen it yet. It, it, it's really good. It's, I always figured that it was more of like a, um, a tribute to like Italian and Spanish giallos with some of the British crime films in it. But rewatching this one, because I hadn't watched it in a while after we had talked about it, I got the Blu-ray from the UK, which was gorgeous, brilliantly colored. It blew my mind how much actually is in Last Night in Soho. So again, another really influential film that as I keep going back and watching films over and over again, I can see the connections to filmmakers who have a lot of respect for Michael Powell and especially the, this movie. The other thing I'd say about that opening scene is when we're finally introduced to Mark after the murder, to who he is and what he is, turns out that he is a, a focus puller for a film company that's shooting a, a film in London. He is not actually the cameraman. He's the one that handles the focus pulling on what seems to be like some kind of comedy that they're filming. And it's really interesting that the movie just seems terrible. And they only show like the one scene of this film that they're shooting, which is a woman in a department store. We'll get to I that really later. I really enjoyed the scenes of the film crew. Yeah, it kind of added a bit of just slight comedic to it. I thought it was kind of a fun back and forth, you know, to see kind of to see how Mark has to live day to day when he has this big secret, you know, kind of thing on his other things that he does. But he also, I mean, he has quite the the lucrative means if you really think about it, because he's he's like this aspiring filmmaker working with his film crew. He also does part-time photography and then he gets like rent from the house that his dad had. So it's like, he has all these little things. He really is into the filmmaking because I think if he really probably didn't have to work if he didn't want to. Yeah. And it also seems like he is living on some kind of trust left by his dad, because as we find out later, his father was a very notable psychiatrist and psychologist and a writer and mm -hmm. owned this building. He, like you said, Mark rents out these rooms for not a lot of money. He'd actually make a point in saying that several attendants say several times like, oh, I couldn't afford to live anywhere else because, you know, the rent here is so cheap. So, yeah, I, I think there is this connection. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the film where like this is why I think Mark is such a great anti-hero and a pro protagonist. He is not an evil person in terms of why he's killing. It's divulged later why he is this way. What he is, is he is a, a man who is a, a product of abuse and of psychological tampering growing up, who desperately wants to have some kind of normal life and a normal relationship with a girl that he doesn't want to kill, you know? That's what makes part of this film so fascinating is like, yes, his 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 job on the film crew is meaningless in the sense of like, yes, he is a vital part of the production, but he has no artistic say in anything. He's just there as like a cog in, in the gear. And then when he is doing his little sidelining as an erotic photographer for this newsstand that fronts for like a pornography shop. <laughs> that shop was hilarious. That shop was hilarious. Just just all the pictures, and then they got like candy and just all these random things in there. And, and again, it kind of like it, it, it touches on that part of England, I'm sure that conservatives were trying to keep quiet, that kind of like dirty mm -hmm. old man in a bookstore kind of mentality of like the guy goes in to buy a newspaper, then he's like, do you got anything else? <laughs> and he ends up buying like <laughs> some French postcards or these dirty photos and then forgets to bring his newspapers out with him. It's yeah. Well, it's just like right there. Like you go into the store and it's like the pictures are right there. Like, right. <laughs> I mean, they're inside. It's not like it's an open thing on the street, but yeah, like you wouldn't expect it when you walk in. Cause it just looks kind of like a convenience store. 
Yeah, and like I said, it kind of goes to play with this whole idea of like, you know, everything might be clean and glossy and colorful on the outside of England at this time, but, you know, behind every door there's a secret and there's something a little bit dirty. And that's kind of like one of the underlying themes of this film that I think is is really interesting. When we talk about his relationship with the character that he's introduced to early on, Helen, what was your first take on their chemistry and their kind of like banter. I, I really liked Helen's character. I like Anna Massey anyway. Um, she was also, she goes on later to be in the 1972 Amicus film, Tales from the Crypt that mm-hmm. I reviewed for my podcast. So I already knew about her. So I saw her in this movie. I like her. I think she's a little flighty, but I think she's supposed to be like 21. So she's just kind of like living her life and having fun and living with her injured alcoholic mom, who I also really enjoyed. I don't think they had any like, I don't know if I would say it was like a romantic chemistry. I would say it was more like, he was there. She'd never met him. She was maybe a little drunk and she was just very interested in who he was because she never sees them. They just put their rent in like a mailbox and run it through an agency. So it's like she had no idea, you know, who the guy upstairs was living up there. So I think a lot of it's more just a curiosity for him. I think he he might feel a little more and he's also terrified because it's a woman and she's got a lot of friends and she's got a lot of stuff that like if something were to happen, he would maybe get caught you know, or something like that. So he tries to like pull away from her, but she's very adamant to get to know him. Hello. I don't know how many times we've passed each other on the stairs, but tonight I'm determined at least to say hello to you. So hello. I'm Helen Stevens. I'm having a party and the other tenants are there and a few friends. We'd like you to join us. I am Mark. Oh, hello, Mark. Please come in. You'll meet the others who live here. Sorry, but... work. Oh, well, I hope to keep it going for ages yet, so when you finish, why not look in? What? Oh, cake. Everyone's waiting. Happy birthday. Well, and there's also something about his M.O. that plays in that, too, because while Anna Massey is, is I think, a very pretty and very cute personality and woman, compared to the people that he's actually killing, he's killing glamorous-looking women. He's killing, like, model women. He's killing the women that well, would be on the cover Well, the first one's supposed to be a sex worker, I think. That's the idea that I got from it, the way it was filmed, and they even talk about it later. They, you know, I think they call her a comfort girl or something at some point. But, yeah, and I think that is one of the things that, that they're trying to build that relationship on is like, he has a connection to this woman because he doesn't want to photograph her. And she's actually having a conversation with him. That's interesting where it seems like when he's with Millie, the girl that he's photographing above the bookstore, she really has nothing to say to him. She treats him almost like, a piece of equipment or a piece of furniture in the room. You know, she kind of owns the room. She's like, are you taking the photos yet or not? Like that kind of attitude. Here's a person that, like you said, even if she's a little bit drunk, she's got a little bit of like, you know, Dutch courage or something. She is actually interested in him and wants to have a conversation with him. That is something I think he's just not used to because. Yeah. I think it freaks him out. Even on the film set, people try and have conversations with him and he's like, yeah, whatever. He doesn't really want to, he doesn't want to open that like human connection because I think deep down inside he doesn't feel human. So one of the things about the mom too that we didn't mention is like she's also blind. And yeah, I meant to mention that I said because she is. I think 
she's injured from maybe falling down the stairs or something. But yeah, she's also blind. And then she likes to just sit around on the couch drinking just whiskey, like meat. And just, I don't know, I really liked her character. I think she just, uh, she had like a lot of good, nice like things to say. She wasn't, it wasn't like they, they could have made her mean, but they didn't. It was just like this mother who was just like living with her daughter at this place and okay, you know, whatever. And she's trying to help later, but it's, yeah, like you said, because she's blind, it kind of, you know. And she has, she has like this almost extra sensory perception to her because she can't see but she can like sense the emotions of Helen. And then she also says that she can sense whenever Mark's looking through the window because the hair is on the back of her neck stand up. So there is something that she's like having this little extra sensory moment, which makes her an even more interesting character because it kind of takes this film that's kind of grounded in reality and psychology to even like another level without really exploring it, it just dabbles in it enough to make the story even that much more interesting. Especially because Mark gets so much from visual, like visuals from filming people, you know, from seeing their fear and emotion and she can't see any of that, but she can still figure things out. Exactly. Helen becomes fascinated in Mark and goes up to his little room and he shows her some films that his father took of him as a child. And she's fascinated by it. She's genuinely interested. And that's one of the things because like, I think anyone can say at some point they've had someone say, oh, look at my old home movies. And you're like, okay, I'm more than happy to. (laughs) She is genuinely fascinated by what she's seeing. But what we're seeing is actually kind of disturbing because it starts off with what like, what his dad was photographing or filming like in the park, like couples kind of playing. And then Mark is up on a wall staring at them. And she's like, oh, you naughty boy. I hope you got a spanking. And then they kind of get darker and darker as like we start seeing Mark's father waking him up in the middle of the night to scare him all the while filming him. Almost as if like Mark is some kind of experiment. Yeah. And part of, this is when I really started to feel for Mark, especially like little Mark. I was like, well, no wonder he's a bit on edge with things. Like every time he probably went to sleep almost, he didn't know if his dad was going to wake him up with a lizard in the bed. Yeah. Throwing a lizard a in the bed. Bright lights. Yeah. A bunch of bright lights and, and noises and things. And then just like all this stuff with fear. And I think it was something with his mom too. Like she was dying and like he was filming that with her dying. And, and then he goes on, the dad goes on to like write about this research and I don't know if he mentions that it was his son or not, but everyone was like, oh, great job. He got all these accolades. And it's like, did no one realize he was torturing this child to get this research? You know, and I'm like, well, no wonder he's a bit off. And off. Then Mark's <laughs> been living in the same place that he had all this stuff happen to him. And, uh, and with like back- most most of his father's equipment, too. Yeah, his house was kind of cool. It was like a library of all these videos and stuff. Lots of wood paneling and things like that. I kind of liked it. But um, I was like, well, geez, no wonder. I'm not saying that like every person would end up like that. But I mean, and- nowadays it would probably be more, you know, you got the trifecta of like serial killers where it's like if they had a head injury and they were a bedwetter and they did things to animals, then usually they were going to end up, you know, serial killer. But like he had no one in his pocket, like no one on his side. His mother had died. Mm -hmm. His dad kind of just was using him as an experiment and he didn't really have any friends or anyone. Yeah. There's like the lack of a love and emotion in the house. And he's essentially just like a lab rat for his father. And I think there's something really interesting in the contrast of this film and Psycho because there is like a Freudian complex, but in this one, it's different because in Psycho, it is all about the mother. There is some like, 
you know, sexual undertones that they really explored in the sequels, especially of the Psycho movies, of why Norman became the way he is. But in this film, it's with the father. And I didn't catch any kind of like sexual abuse undertones for this one. This one is almost as like a, a void of love, a void of compassion, and mixed with this like weird experimentation and fear and response that his dad's doing to him, it does create a monster like Norman Bates was in Psycho, but it's a different kind of monster. Yeah, to his dad, Mark was just a thing. Yeah, just an object, just like, a, like a lab rat. Yeah, just an object. And then he, I, th- I think he eventually gives him his own camera so then he can start, you know, filming his own stuff and, you know, just, yeah. just kind of takes off from there. Now, we get led to one of the most interesting parts of this film. So Mark meets a woman named Vivian on the set of the film he's making. And she's like a stand-in for the main star. And, you know, she's kind of flirty with him. And he's like, well, how about you come to the set and I will shoot a reel for you on the set. And so she shows up. I think she thinks that he has more power or pull on the set than he actually does. Like he's just the focus puller. But he shows up with his equipment. She turns on the radio and she's doing this dance. And while she's doing this dance around the set, he's running around the set and he's adjusting the lights and he's moving set pieces because he's about to film his masterpiece, so to speak, right? (laughs) You got to set the mood for this, this kill. So we actually see this kill in action because the first one that we see in the film, we just see like death through the eye of the camera. We don't actually see the apparatus or the ritualistic thing behind it. As she is standing there for her close up, so to speak, Mark pulls out his tripod, pops off the bottom leg to expose a razor sharp dagger at the end of it. As he like zooms into her with this thing, we catch like this amazing wave of fear across her face as he pierces her neck with this blade. And there's actually more to it that we find out later. But yeah, it's such an interesting setup for a kill going through this very kind of festive dance as he's like setting up the mood only to end in this rather disturbing and kind of graphic, not graphic as a shower scene, but I think it hurts more because it shows the fear more. I loved that scene when I was like, when I saw what he was doing and I saw him pull the the bottom of the tripod off, I was like, oh, that's where, okay. So he's hiding it like that. And then the fact that he's like filming these women as he kills them because he wants to watch it later. And I think there's even like a, a mirror or something so that person can see that they're being filmed I, I want to say there was like a reflection but um maybe it's later but he he stabs her he sets the mood he stabs her he can't help himself and so she dies he's got it all on film and obviously i mean i don't know how much they meant it at the time but it's when you go back and you think about him going back and watching all these tapes which is what he does a lot like at night when he's back at his house he's re-watching a lot of these tapes he has like a projector or whatever right mm-hmm. um the fact that it is a knife coming out of him like almost it's a bit phallic you know, a hundred percent and, um, you know, penetrating this woman and killing her and then filming the, for him, it's a desired response of fear. You know, that's what, that's what he wants. Even in, um, it's mostly the fear I think is what he really likes. Cause even in, when he, when we were talking about how he was taking those pinup photos, there was a woman there, uh, who had some scarring on her face and mm-hmm. he wanted to film her or take pictures. And she was kind of like, you know, whatever, put off about it. And it wasn't even that, it wasn't that he found her attractive. It was more the fact that she was so scared of him making fun of her, I think. He found that attractive. So that's why he wanted to film it because she looked terrified. 
a bit when he was taking the pictures and irritated. Yeah, and she even says something earlier. She's like, oh, I just do body shots. They don't shoot my face because yeah. she, she had like a cleft palate or something like that. Yeah. Now, my take on that is like the reason why he enjoys that fear is because of, again, what his dad did to him to scare him and film the fear of of him as a child. Like there's definitely a traumatic response to that. And that's what's kind of like becoming his new kink and his new fetish. And yeah, definitely there is that phallic reference because I, I don't know if you got this vibe, but my assumption is that Mark is technically a virgin. What did you think? I could see that. Yeah, I don't think he would get far enough maybe to where he would like to have a relationship far enough with someone to do that. Like maybe he was even... I mean, we don't know. We don't know when this all started. Do we know if the sex worker in the beginning was when this first started with the killings? They I don't know, say that's the like... first body found. So they think that like that's the first victim. That's not to say it's his first kill. In this wave yeah. of killings, that's the first one they found. Because it seems like once all that started, it really escalates in the movie to where the end is just like this crazy thing, you know? So I can I feel like it probably was building up to this. Um, and maybe, you know, they don't mention it, but maybe he hired the sex worker. I know he was like following her, but, you know, and he was planning on maybe losing his virginity. But then he was like, never mind. I got my camera. I got my camera. <laughs> and they make a point of it, too. Like he never leaves his camera at home. And we'll get to that in a second because there's a part that yeah. happens after this. So what we realize is not only is Mark fascinated in filming these killings, like you said, like a serial killer that returns to the scene of the crime, he likes to come back and either photograph or film the investigations or the discovery of the body. So like the next day, he's on set at work, and he has stuffed Vivian's body in a trunk. Love <laughs> and, this scene. And here they are, this poor, this poor director just trying to get this scene shot, and they pull this trunk out as part of this scene. The main actress opens it up to expose her stand-in dead in this trunk with her face frozen in fear, and she screams and faints, and the director's like, no, you fainted too soon, before they realize <laughs> there's a body in the trunk. Here we are, madam. Uh, oh, I'd like to see one in red. Certainly, madam. Would you mind sitting? Right, I'm here now. Huh? Okay, in your bag. I'm never doing it. Right. Ready for you, and back you go. Pay for a close-up there. Um, do you have one in white? Certainly, madam. Good. Good, Michael. Excellent. Right, back again. Oh, um, do you have one in blue? Certainly, madam. Oh, play it lightly, Michael. Right, when it's in position, get up tight into him there. Very good, and... She's fainted in the wrong scene. And I loved it too, because as he's as they're moving the trunk around, they're like they're kind of acting like, oh, it's kind of heavy, you know? Yeah. And part of me is like, oh my gosh, like I had the same tension of uh, have you ever seen uh, Hitchcock's rope? Oh yes. From 1948. <laughs> so the whole scene of just like, you know something's hidden somewhere and everyone's just acting normal around it, but you know sometimes someone's gonna figure out what it is. Just waiting for the reveal. Just waiting for her to open it. Yeah. <laughs> so so the interesting thing about um, him shooting that that reveal, you know, he, he steps away. He grabs his camera to film 
the reveal, when they're doing the investigation on the scene, when they question him and they ask him why is he carrying a, a camera around to film everything, he says that he's making a documentary. He even says that to Helen a few nights earlier when she's in his apartment. So it almost is as if the conclusion of the film, which we get to when we talk to the end of the third act, has almost been premeditated start to finish. Did you kind of get that upon second watch? Um, a, a little bit. I mean, I think, I mean, definitely with by the end, you know, you can you can figure that he he knew what he was doing was different and wanted to make his ending the way he wanted. And he had things set up in place. So, yeah, I think it was definitely he knew that if he would ever get caught or anything like that, like this is how he would want it to end. So he had kind of started setting things up long term. Right. Again, that's why it kind of I'm not really sure when he first started killing. I know it's implied it's the first one we see, but part of me wonders if it's not. I think he's just getting more and more careless with going back to the scene of the crime and talking to people and making it somewhat apparent, you know, that like eventually someone would catch on, you know, that he keeps showing up in the area. Exactly. Um, and, and, and I think that's what leads great into the next part is that he is starting to become more vulnerable with Helen. Helen wants to take him out to dinner. Like she wants to go out with him. He even gets her a present, which he kind of makes a, a, a note saying like, it's the first present he's ever gotten anybody before. And he gets her like this little dragonfly brooch and it's really cute. And she tells him that she wants to be a writer and she's putting together this book about a boy with a magic camera that, you know, it can take pictures and it kind of goes back and like shows everything that leads up to what these pictures he's taking. Like it's a storytelling camera. And the idea of that story just like fascinates him and almost makes him cry because it's just something that really connects with him. Like his life is essentially lived through a camera. And the fact that she's asking him to do photos for this book that's so relevant to him, it's beginning to like almost interrupt his modus operandi. Like he doesn't want to potentially live the rest of his life or complete his documentary as a killer when there might be a chance at happiness with a real person. How did you feel about that yeah, connection? Someone, yeah, someone's showing an actual interest in him and he likes her and he doesn't want to you know, hurt her and he wants to get to know her. And she's innocent and she literally, she essentially like, like put off by him. He's a little strange. He's a little quiet, but she like finds him interesting. She tries to bring him out of his shell as best she can, but he's not, a, not used to anyone caring about him. Like his dad never did. It didn't seem like maybe his mom did, but then she died and he didn't have anyone to literally be like, how do you feel about this? What are your interests? What are you into? You know, all stuff. So he's got this, this woman here who wants to just get to know him. Yeah. He's so used to living through this camera, which I kept having this thought of like, man, nowadays he would just be glued to that iPhone. Uh, yeah. If he was just, <laughs> if uh, he would just have all these videos to go back and watch. Who, who knows? This might end up being made through like the eyes of a TikToker. Who knows? Yeah. I, I think I think he's torn at this point where he's not sure because he, he has this opportunity to go, you know, on the straight and narrow a little more. But can he quell his desires and his the things he's already done? Like she has no idea. You know, what would he what would she think if he if she knew? And there's an interesting turn here, because up until the point where they're about to go on the date, Helen's mom seems to be rather like unopinionated about about Mark. Like, oh, he lives upstairs and this and that. Like, she's totally fine with the idea of her going to visit. But there's something about before they go out on dinner that Helen's mom is a little bit hesitant. And she has this very great line. She says that, I don't trust a man who walks quietly. And he's always walking quietly up the stairs. So after they go out on their date, which 
Helen has convinced him to leave his camera behind, which looks like it's the first time he's ever done that. So <laughs> we as the audience kind of get this breath of relief, like, oh, hopefully she's safe because he's not going to kill her without his camera. He comes yeah. <laughs> home to find her mom in his apartment. It's interesting because she's blind, but she asks him about his films. So he plays the films which she can't see. And we are for the first time seeing these killings, what he's really seeing and, and what they are watching, what he's watching every night. And she can't see it. And she pretty much is just like, I don't know what's on there, but whatever it is, don't film my daughter. And he promises her that he will never photograph or film Helen. Yeah, I think some of that has to do too with the fact that he's trying to get her to leave. She won't. And instead of like making it a point to make her leave, he's, he has this compulsion to put on the movie. Like, I, I'm guessing some of it is because he hadn't had the camera on him all night. You know, so it's kind of like he had this, he's like, couldn't wait to get back home and be like, oh, I can't wait to put my movies in. They're my comfort, you know, kind of thing. So he threw it on anyway. I don't know if he was hoping it would freak her out and she'd leave anyway. I'm assuming he knew she was blind. So. Well, and he even pulls um, his tripod out. So for a second, we think that he is about to kill her. But yeah. it doesn't fit with the ritual. It doesn't fit with his M.O., so he doesn't. In fact, he puts it down and he hands her back her cane. She's like, okay, I guess I'll leave now. The stairs are always the hardest part. She stumbles out of the apartment. So yeah, it's a very <laughs> interesting scene because again, it, it gives us a better clue into you know what his, his psychology is behind what he's doing, but also the fact that he really does care for Helen. And yeah, because this is her mom. Yeah, he's so not going to get very far if he kills her mom with a tripod. Yeah, <laughs> this is where, like, I think when I said that Helen is a distraction and, and Mark starts kind of noticing that he's getting sloppy is when they start investigating even further. You know, the chief inspector and the sergeant of the police are inspecting the crime scene of Vivian's death even further. Mark crawls up into the rafters and he's filming them looking at the scene. And like I said, they, they said that. Her face was frozen in like this state of terror and they start kind of deconstructing. Well, it's someone on the movie set. It's someone here. Helen's mom isn't an idiot. She's like, hey, what studio do you work at? Because by now all of these these murders are in the paper and she's mm -hmm. starting to put things together. So I think that's where Mark, like we were talking earlier, is starting to kind of like formulate his final chapter of this. What was your take on that? So are you talking about like, you're talking about when he was back at the movie scene and they were trying to keep filming and they were also investigating at the same time when he was filming up in the rafters. Yeah. Cause there's a psychiatrist too that comes. Cause that's kind of how we find out more about his dad. I think. Yeah. I think that's right. After is like, yeah, I knew his dad who did a bunch of stuff. I liked this scene just because like, to me, this scene was kind of fun because it's, it's he marks making himself very suspicious and all these people keep asking him questions he's taking this risk by climbing up in the rafters i think he dropped a pin like uh -huh. so everyone kind of like started looking up i also was laughing a bit like kind of the fact that this the show must go on they found a dead body <laughs> but this is like days later and they're like we have to keep going and the poor actress they bring her back in and she's like like she's she, like on edge and trembling. she sees the red hat and she's instantly like blood ah, and runs off the yeah, set she can't handle it and the director's just like Ugh, you know because he's going to lose out on money and all this stuff like they've been he filming they've been filming movie. that same scene for like a week now <laughs> so yeah it's and, just it's a scene of it, it's just mark is getting a bit sloppy i think here he's starting to sloppy and self-destructive because they, they bring that yeah. psychiatrist in and you know mark asks like one of the other guys that's on the film crew he's like oh who is that like 
oh, they brought a psychiatrist to talk to us so they can like narrow down suspects. And Mark has this interesting line. The guy's like, why are you crazy? And Mark says, yes. Do you think they'll notice? <laughs> like He's just so now open about, <laughs> you know, what his situation is. So he goes and talks to the psychiatrist who, in my opinion, that psychiatrist is crazy. He is like manic <laughs> and giggly. And when he meets Mark and finds out who Mark's dad is, he starts like fanboying out over his dad. And he's like, oh, I listened to your dad talk and I read all of his books. And do you know about this and that? I wonder if you knew my father, Professor Lewis. <laughs> A.N. Lewis. Of course I knew him. He lectured to me in extraordinary men. Brilliant, quite brilliant. Do you know what he was interested in before he died? No, tell me, tell me. I, I don't remember what he called it, but it has something to do with what what causes people to be peeping toms? Scoptophilia, that would interest him. Most fertile mind. Scoptophilia, the morbid urge to gaze. <laughs> Coins since his day. Now tell me, are there any of his manuscripts left? I should thought it could be cured. Usually, yeah. Now about his manuscript. Quickly. <laughs> the cure? Oh, very quick. A couple of years analysis, three times a week, an hour time, and soon it's uprooted. Now, are there any of his papers left? I should be most grateful if I could see them. And Mark's like, no, I don't want to talk about my dad and like takes off. But yeah, the fact- Mark's like, oh, I know, because it was me. I know it was me. That was the subject of that book. But again, they bring in the psychiatrist who's like seriously manic and out of control. And even like the, sh- the chief inspector goes and talks to the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is like, oh, yes, I know his father's work. And he's like, OK, dude, calm down, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, they take they take Mark into the office and they interview him. And he just talks about, yes, I'm making a documentary. What is it about? Oh, it's just about my life on the set, this and that. And again, like he's not suspect number one, but he does put out this vibe that he's almost putting out on purpose. So they put a tail on him. There's something interesting about like, I think because he didn't have a chance to kill the day before they, the guy that asked him if he was crazy, the guy on the set shows him a picture of, you know, one of the nudie girls that he picked up at the bookstore. And he's like, oh, you've given me an idea. So he calls the bookstore owner and sets an appointment to take photos of Millie. This is all because Mark's got to, he's got to complete his opus or he's got to kill something. I didn't really know what his direction was on that. What was your take on it? Did he already, I'm trying to remember, did he already know that he was being tailed when he got to the news agency? I, I didn't think that at first, but once he's in the news agency and he looks out the window, he says, ah, that's what I thought. So I think yeah. that confirmed. So I think- I think it's part of that stress. Like maybe he was also worried, like, oh, I gave too much away, yeah. you know, or they're on to me. I better do what I can before the end is coming. So I think that's why he probably decided to kill Millie. I don't well, know if he necessarily, I don't think it was really the plan, you know, really right. probably until he got there and was like, I, I can feel the walls closing in. So I might as well do this. Plus um, she was never nice to him down. anyway, you know? <laughs> oh, she totally deserved it. You know? <laughs> I'm not saying like she deserved <laughs> to die, but you know, <laughs> I'm surprised the way she treated him that she wasn't victim number one. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's killed her. He goes back to his apartment. When he gets there, he finds out that Helen 
who's been like curious about his movies has been watching one of them. And that is, in my my opinion. Real quick. Yeah. Sorry. One thing, just real quick. How does everyone get into his apartment? It's like his mom, her mom, Helen gets in there. Does he just not lock his doors? It's just like a 1960 thing where he just. Yeah. I I just don't think he locks his doors. Okay. Because it seems like every time he comes home, there's someone in there now. So uh, anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, you're hundred percent right. It, 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 I'm not sure if that is a plot hole or if it's just like one little kind of MacGuffin thing that we're supposed to deal with. Like, oh, there's no locked doors in this house, which is interesting because if he wanted to, he could go in and kill anyone he wanted to at leisure if he wasn't afraid of getting caught. But yeah, you know, so he gets back to his apartment and Helen's in there and she somehow knows how to put a film projector together because she starts one of his films. And that is one of my favorite shots of the film where like Michael Powell really kind of shows us his skill. Like her face is so perfectly lit from all these different angles and all these different colors. And you were watching her watch this essentially snuff film that he's put together of these killings, but you never see the film. You watch the whole transaction happen through the changes of expression on her face. And I thought that was just magical. Yeah. There's a lot of times in especially older movies where you don't have to see it, mm-hmm. you know, like similar to like, like Texas Chainsaw 74. Like there's really not much blood or gore in there because you don't really need it. It's the implication and your head will come up with the worst case scenario. So watching Helen's face and her, just the terror on her face, you're like, oh my gosh, what is she looking at? It's gotta be terrible. Like it's gotta be horrible what he's doing, you know? Which is an interesting contrast because we've actually seen the majority of these killings take place. So the fact that he's like put them together, we feel like we've already seen most of the killing. We are now getting to see what a person who, as innocent especially as she is, is seeing something that's going to change her for the rest of her life. When he comes in and he catches her, that's when they do the kind of big reveal that the reason why there is so much fear on the faces of these people that he's killed is because he has mounted a contraption that's like a mirror on top of his camera that his lens can poke through, and they are actually watching themselves die. Therefore, the fear and emotion is like intensified. So dark and messed up. But again, too, like a- oh man, for like 1960, I'm sorry, yeah, Psycho. So good. I- I- I'm sorry, Norman Bates. This guy gets my vote of like the most devious killer of that year for sure. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that the movie kind of goes where it goes because A, he's kind of set up that he's making this documentary film and then it's about to end. And we really feel like it can't end with Helen dying. And he has a knife like up against her throat. And you really think he's going to do it. Who knows? If the police hadn't shown up at that time, maybe he would have. But it seems like he planned it from the very beginning that he turns the camera around. And I'm going to let you finish this off. Oh, I absolutely loved it. (laughs) Because I was like, oh, it's so dark and so like tragic. And like, I feel for him. But then like. Like, he'd been planning this all along. He set up so that his, like, big show-stopping in would be filming himself dying. So the, he, he like, turns the camera on himself, and, and you know, you can see him. Uh, I think, does he have, I think he has Helen kind of help, or, like, like he runs into her or something. Like, she's got the camera. I'm trying to remember how it happened, but it's basically he wants to film himself being stabbed by the same tripod and watch himself die, and that's what he wants as his last like memories on the earth he wants to make like that's the end of his documentary of everything that it's, it's him dying and it's like all set up in his apartment and things he knows that the end is coming the cops are coming up the stairs and 
this is it. Poor Helen's in the way. Like she's, yeah. I don't think he probably would have killed her, but now she's got all this on her, her conscience and her mind. Like her mom's still okay. So that's good. But like, she was just trying to be, make a friend and she did like him. And it was just this whole thing that she didn't even see coming until like the very end. And he just plunges that tripod knife into his throat. The second he does, the cameras flash, he gets several shots. It must have been an amazing shot. I would have loved to have seen the Yeah, the it's crazy that he set subject. up, he just, he had all this stuff set up. It was just, he wanted every angle, you know? <laughs> he was like setting the mood lighting and everything. He's like, or what's weird too is like, no one else is probably ever going to watch it unless it's like cops or right. something. Like it's, he doesn't even get to see it, you know? He kind of sees it maybe in the little mirror for a second, but you know, he's kind of busy being stabbed in the neck, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, and that's the story of Mark and the story of Peeping Tom. I love this movie so much and like I hadn't watched it in a while. We talked about it and I didn't want to watch a version off TV. I wanted to finally own a good copy. So I got that Blu-ray and there was a lot of good information in it. And you know, here's the thing. There are like these terms and like these themes to it that I don't think were quite as relevant to mainstream audiences back then, but seem to make a lot of sense. Now they, they talk about this term, called scopophilic fetishism, which is essentially voyeurism. And it seems so outlandish back then because voyeurism back then, I mean, what was it really? Looking through windows, being a peeping Tom. And now in this day and age, we essentially are all voyeurs, what with social media and TikTok and reels. Like we're looking into people's lives every day and we're almost like building industries and communities behind it. Like isn't that like such a weird contrasting idea? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, this, this thing of like voyeurism supposed to be bad. And then, but then it's like, everyone has a camera and <laughs> you know, it's so it's, yeah, it's like, I don't know. Back in like the late nineties, early two thousands when reality TV and like webcams were becoming a thing, like, and yes, there's been lots of movies based off of that for sure. But mm -hmm. there, there is something to say like how I don't think audiences were ready for that at that time. Critics were not. Let's talk about how critics just yeah. tore this film apart. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I want to say, like, it was it was not taken very well. Uh, like you were saying, didn't you say, like, kind of, yeah, it killed his career, Powell's career, basically. Um, yeah. It, they, <laughs> I, I did see one thing where they, the uh, the monthly film bulletin had a review that likened him to the Marquis de Sade. Oh, my God. And yeah. I was like, okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not not so much, but I mean, again, like it was a very conservative time, and and the the fact that it came out the same time as Psycho, both made by British filmmakers, Psycho for sure it was stylish as this one was. Um, it, it again super contrasting because like Hitchcock, known for like his stylish movies, decided to go low key and low budget and very um, minuscule on on the photography for Psycho, doing it in black and white with his with his TV show crew. Meanwhile, this one is just so, I'm not going to use the word opulent because I don't think it was super expensive, but it, it looks opulent. It looks like a, like a Fabergé egg. It's just so colorful. It's almost vibrant. like it's painted and vibrant. Yeah. And it, yeah. It, it has a whole different vibe for this proto slasher genre than what psycho does. And, and I think that's what makes them kind of work back to back. Cause I'm not sure they were like, I don't think Hitchcock and Powell were like trying to compete with each other. It was a good contrast because you can't say that one was copying the other at all. 
There's also one interesting thing too. I believe Michael Pell. I believe his son is the one who played the young Mark in the movie. So he had a son set up to do all the like psycho or the psychiatry fear stuff that was his son playing that role oh good god um, yeah <laughs> i wonder if it was michael powell like behind the camera of the the father you know who knows yeah yeah okay son act terrified i'm gonna throw this lizard on you like <laughs> you know so i thought that was kind of interesting oh goodness yeah and like again like it, it, it's sad that powell's career kind of did essentially end i mean you know he like he said he, he made some films after this but the, the mm-hmm. credibility and the notoriety behind him kind of went away with this film. Like people thought he made a dirty film. Like people thought this film was like you said, the Marquis de Sade, it was pornographic. It was filthy. It was just a little too much, a little too early. That's the way I see yeah. it. But when you go back and you talk about filmmakers like Scorsese and De Palma and pretty much everyone in new Hollywood, they all talk about this movie and how much it influenced them in how how they worked. I mean, even Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is, in a way, kind of like a a darker, grittier, urban version of this same kind of story. Just an unconnected man who is just on the edge of, let's say, either insanity or just collapse and just, you know, becomes a vigilante killer. There's a lot of that movie in this, even though, like, the psychiatry is different. There is that same kind of character arc there is a girl that can turn it around. There is that like kind of like self-destructive moment at the end. Like you see echoes of this movie in a lot of different movies. Yes, definitely. This is definitely it. It's a good kickoff like base for different slasher serial killer type movies. I don't know how it got past me for so long that I had never heard of it, but I'm glad I watched it. It was a really good time. Well, and that's why I'm glad I, I talked to you because you like to dig. Like you like to dig for movies. And when you were talking about this one on The Sadist, I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that one next. Because, yeah, and it also broke a lot of a lot of barriers you know, with the violence, with the blood, with the nudity. There there are themes in here that they hadn't really seen. Like 1960, you're just you're not even into New Hollywood yet. You're still in a lot of like censorship areas in America. It's just really, really fascinating time for this film to come out. And I'm not going to say that Michael Powell was like trying to be a genre breaker. Like a lot of his other other films are quite like classical standard films that look great and have a lot of great content to it. But with this one, it was really just out of character for him and and good for him because I I, I don't want to live in a world where this film didn't get made. Well, and who knows, had he had support or people really liking it, if he could have made something even more you know, intense or not, you know, maybe not like uh, this could have been just like a one-off, but I mean, he has other great movies, but this one was just so, you know, just like you said, a little ahead of its time. Maybe if it would have came out in seventies, eighties, right. What, you know, would have been a little more, but yeah, it was still coming out of the like tinsel town era <laughs> and all that, you know, Hollywood stuff. So everyone was, you know, grasping and clutching their pearls. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. So if you were to like try and pitch this movie to someone who hadn't seen it, what would your selling points be on it? Well, I've already been doing that after I watched it. Nice. Uh, I mentioned it to my my parents and my brother. Uh, I was telling them about it. But basically I was like, well, it's it's a British film. It, you know, had a lot of like new things. Like there's a it's like one of the first ones where nudity was in it, which is like like a big thing in film cinema in a way, even though it's very quick, it's it has the point of view of the killer that you don't normally see up until then. Um, it's a good like psychological horror. Uh, 
it's you know it's just got a good plot and a good flow like it didn't really seem like it got too slow or anything like that like it kept you interested and like that i think that's one thing a lot of people worry about with older movies that it's going to be a lot of boring dialogue or something mm-hmm. like that. sometimes it is but a lot of times there's a lot of those movies that they i mean they hold up they're good stories like they're you know they're well written it's a well shot movie and just the ending is just really memorable great ending great ending and like i asked you last time if you were to pair this film with another film as a double feature what would you pair it with so i was thinking and a quick like little add to it now this movie that i'm going to recommend i think would make a good double feature for this but i don't particularly I didn't really love the movie. Okay. Like it's a fine movie. It's okay. But it's not like one that I'm like, oh my God, it's so good. But I think if we jump forward like 45 years or so uh-huh. and we go to uh, 2006 Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Oh, have you seen that one? I haven't, but I've heard of it. I see it a lot on like my film groups. It's like a kind of like a mockumentary type situation about this this naive young woman filmmaker and her two camera people. And she's interested in this guy um, who claims to be, he's obsessed with like movie slashers and he claims to be like a beginner serial killer. So they follow him around to make this like documentary. You know, things get kind of crazy. I thought the movie was fine. I find him a little annoying, which is maybe the point, but um, (laughs) mostly I liked it because it's a little tongue in cheek of like, like there's one scene where they go to meet like a a retired serial killer and it's like him and his wife and they're having like a barbecue at their house and they're just like shooting the breeze and he's all like talking about the good old days and then later things start getting more and more amped up and it's like by the end the woman realizes you know she's bit off way too much and it's like (laughs) well of course like he's gonna let you get away (laughs) if you're making a documentary on him being a serial killer but uh i mean it's still fun and it's got a lot of great actors in it you know like you got like a couple bits from like robert england zelda rubenstein oh i love her everyone has like little parts in it yeah so i mean it's still fun it's just i know a lot of people really love it but that it didn't quite do that for me but i think it would make a fun documentary based on just women who are interested in men who have maybe like a sordid past and just keep pushing and pushing until it goes too much you know interesting cool cool i'll have to check that one out um i would pair it with a kind of obscure movie now like when i watched this film again like all i did was start thinking about films that have taken either ideas or plot points or themes from it and it just put me on the the idea of like serial killers and the movie that i kind of thought about when i was doing this not that they're connected really in any way it's just the movie that jumped in my mind and then i went back and watched it like a day later because it made me think of this movie and that's 1988's Jack's Back, starring James Spader. And it's about, I've never seen that. It's about a serial killer in Los Angeles who is celebrating Jack the Ripper's 100th anniversary of his murders and starts doing these copycat killings oh in gosh. the style of Jack the Ripper. And it's one of those movies of like, is your hero the killer or is your hero the hero? Like, there's a lot of kind of ambiguity to who's doing what. And so I think it'd be a good contrast to this film where you are following the killer from start to finish and then following it up with a film about a serial killer that keeps it ambiguous. So that's why I recommended that one, just because it's a nice little contrast, you know? Is it like straight horror or is it more of a comedy? No, it's more of like a thriller. Seems like yeah, like the, the sure. title yeah. the title uh, is a little unfitting for it, but <laughs> watch the trailer. You'll be like, okay, because the trailer is even kind of cheesy too. I trust me, 
the film is nothing like the trailer. Okay, so you have to check that out because pretty close to what Jack the Ripper did because that's pretty. Uh, I mean, it's macabre for sure. It's macabre. Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, this was well, fun. I'm glad we got to have a, a second episode together. There'll be more for sure. Start thinking about what films we should be talking about. And how about you just plug your 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 podcast and all the other things you got going on. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This is so much fun. I love talking about movies, especially older movies. Uh, so you can, I have my podcast, like I said, about tales from the crypt heading into the seventh season. I also talk about other horror movies. Uh, I just recently released one about the movie inside from 2007, but um, uh, you can check out the good evening kitties podcast on Facebook, on Twitter at Gek Podcasts, or that's at G-E-K Podcast. And yeah, that's basically what I got going on right now. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's been a blast. I can't wait to do this again a few episodes from now. Can you believe like this is going to be like episode 10 and you were episode number four? Like it's just creeping along. So yeah. Okay, everyone. Well, thanks for joining us. And my name is Antonio. This is the Cult Worthy Classic. Next week, I will be talking with my good friend Mike Jones about 1932's Freaks by Todd Browning. That one should be really exciting, so be sure to tune in. And like Melissa said, follow her podcast, the Good Evening Kitties podcast, and I will see you next week.